Welcome to Tech Matters, sharing our vast business and development experience with developers like you. Here are your hosts, Stephen Feather and Patrick Shetta. Peer code reviews are the single biggest thing you can do to improve your code. And that's a quote from Jeff Atwood, uh, one of the co-founders of Stack Overflow and now works with the Discourse Project, I guess, since 2012. Code reviews. That's what we're going to talk about today. Yes, I I love <clears throat> that we're going to talk about code reviews. Um, I know that um, we tend to um, discuss process a lot, and we say sometimes these things are agile and sometimes they're not. But a lot of times we'll hear that people tend to think that code review, especially younger developers, is this new agile thing. But in fact, I have a reference here to an, an IBM Systems Journal from 1976, where the title of the article is, Design and Code Inspections to Reduce Errors in Program Development. So this concept is not new. No. Uh, at AT&T, we inherited some of, I won't say baggage, but some good things that came along from the older mainframe guys. And I think you have, too, from some of your experience in the past. Yes, yes. I used to work at Lucent and uh, definitely a, a longstanding uh code review process there. Sure. And we'll get into some of those details as we go on. So when we're doing code reviews, uh, we're going to, today we're going to break it off essentially into three different roles, if you would. Uh, that being that of the coder, the person who writes the code, the reviewer, the person who's going to review the code. And, and while it's not necessarily a person, the code and or the process will be the third and final piece that we talk about. So let's talk about first the coder. You, you've been tasked with either solving a problem or integrating a new feature into an existing application or a new application. Um, let's talk about what that looks like for that person. Right. I think the, the number one thing to talk about is, is the mindset as, as the coder. So you really need to understand that you don't, you don't own the code. And I put that in air quotes, you know, you're, this is something you're working on. It, it's it's a learning opportunity. It's intended, you know, for improvement. Um, but you really have to have a, a mindset, a positive mindset going into it. Um, you have to be humble. You have to say, you know, this, assuming, you know, that you didn't write the whole code, but this is something that you're tasked with fixing. And, and, you have to be humble about what's the history of it. You don't understand the history necessarily. You're coming in, you're trying to fix this one thing, and you have to say, you know, I'm a guest. I'm going to do my best to, to be a guest in here. And, um, you know, it's possible that I might do it wrong, and I can acknowledge that and say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't understand, and, and just in general have a, a good mindset and, and be humble about your participation. It's odd that, and, and this may be a side, but, and we may have to have a separate discussion about this later on. Cut me off if we do. Uh, but one of the things that I find interesting is that if you're a carpenter and you're cutting stuff out or you're creating woodwork, that's one thing. But if you're a rough carpenter and all you're doing is framing, do you go home at the end of the day and say, I hammered the best series of nails of my life. This was my best day ever. I ham hammered every 16 penny nail perfectly today. But uh, and, and while you take ownership in, I did great work, when you're done with the job, you walk away and you might go by and say, I, I helped on that house, but you didn't do everything. But there's something about 
when we write code, that it's more akin to painting a post, you know, a portrait instead of painting a house. There is something that we try to make personable about every little line of code. Even our comments. Well, I put that comment in there. (laughs) So what? But when it comes down to ownership, we take offense if somebody doesn't like it or we expect filled with pride when somebody does like it. There's something weird about that. I absolutely agree with you. Okay. I just wanted to make sure it wasn't just me. And I, and I know I've fallen into that trap as well. This is my work and you know, no, it's not. It was work for hire. Or even if you own the copyright, it's still just some one little piece in your giant career. So, all right. Right. So following up with that, be humble. This is a learning opportunity when somebody's going to look at your code base. You might learn something new, right? Yes. Okay. That you might have screwed up too. That that that's the other one. Is let's acknowledge the fact that if you screwed up, say, "Hey, I own that one." I've been in a situation uh, pretty recently, actually, where um, it was in, in a JavaScript app, and um, I come from my long-term history is more of server side and other languages that were not JavaScript, although I've been doing it for a while. And someone uh, was on my team who had only worked in JavaScript. So the way they approached it was much fresher than me saying, oh, this is just like this and this is just like this. So kind of a different view of it. And I, as the person with double or more the experience, had the humble mindset that I can and am learning things from this person who is far my junior, but I, I put myself in that, and that was with code reviews and in general on the project, was just be humble and I'm learning from this person and I'm getting better at these little pieces that I don't know, you know, as well as, you know, being a teacher in, in other aspects of the project. But I absolutely agree with you. So on both sides, both as the coder and now I'm moving into the reviewer role, have a good mindset about this as you go into it. Um, as a reviewer, one of the things you and I have talked about is that you may have a Q&A department, but their job is not to do code reviews. And code review, I believe, needs to be done by a rotating group of peers. There may be some that disagree with that, where they believe you should have one person in the development team who's the gatekeeper for all the code that goes in. I believe that you end up with a different kind of fiefdom in your code base there if you have one person who's responsible and you don't have the opportunity to learn from the group if you're doing pure, purely pure code reviews. Right. And I, I would say probably a really good makeup if you can do it is maybe peer coders who might be on your level. And then if you have the opportunity to have uh, maybe the original architect or someone who was there at the beginning of time on this project who can come in and, and offer things that maybe you working in, in these peripheral uh, areas of the code, you, you don't know, you don't work in that area or whatever, but, but if you can make up the team with these super experienced people along with more peer coders, uh, I think that's a wonderful uh, combination. 
And you don't always take just the highest and senior level dev to do a code review. Quite often, it's great for a younger dev to look at a pull request and sit and say, can I see whether this meets the criteria? That also keeps an older experienced dev humble when he knows that a younger may find a problem with his code. Um, I, in our organization, I allow every, anybody can review my code. It's not like, well, I'm the founder, so my code I submit myself and I check it in and nobody else touches it. No, I've got to pass through a review process as well. And that's also goes to the integrity of the process. If you've got somebody who's outside of your guidelines, um, you don't have a very good process there. Uh, so again, hum, humility seems to be a recurring thing. Be humble. Um, yes, you're looking as a reviewer, you're looking to, for mistakes. Um, but sometimes you're not going to find the mistake. So don't go out of your way to make one up just so that you can poke and prod and, you know, stick the poor young dev with something and say, Hey, this is what you want. And we were talking beforehand. We, about 15 years ago, we were outsourcing some work and we had somebody on our team who was responsible for checking the work that was coming from the outsource firm. And we were having lunch and one day he was just complaining about the quality of the code that was coming from the firm that we were outsourcing to. And I hadn't had any problems. So I went back and I looked and I looked at his code that he was reviewing this, that he was specifically complaining about, and I couldn't find anything wrong with it. It was, it was great. It met all our criteria and everything. We'll walk through the criteria and checklist a minute. And then I started going back and looking at his interaction with folks and humility had disappeared somewhere. And he just had this antagonistic attitude towards the outsourcers. And I ended up having to let him go because he was causing more problems during the review than the actual code was coming through. So I think that's a big deal. If, if you can't find anything wrong with a pull request and it does everything it's supposed to do, and we'll talk about that, um, let that thing go through. Don't give them a hard time. Just approve it and be done with it. Yeah, toxic is never good. No, not at all. And while we're talking primarily about work that either is done for contract or inside our firms, uh, a lot of this and actually all of this applies to open source projects as well. Uh, definitely. Um, and I have discussions uh, quite often with folks about how they do their own open source projects, their attitude when they're uh, submitting to projects, uh, how, how large are they, how large do they want their own projects to be, and things like that. And uh, I think something that's very important about open source is if it's uh, your uh you know, repository that is you've published as open source, you really need to let people know what you're expecting if they're going to do a, a pull request. Um, are you extremely particular about uh, the styling or not? Are you extremely particular about using particular libraries or not using particular libraries? And just put it on there either very simply or if it's a large enough project, uh, define it, maybe a style guideline or something like that. But I think it's extremely important that having contributors to your open source project, they know what to expect and they know that uh, they're not wasting your time and, and, you know, perhaps getting a good rapport with you along the way. Sure, sure. Um, I, I, I think we can narrow that down to don't be a massive jerk about things. Agreed. <laughs> if, if, if there is one continuing reason that companies don't like open source, it's go read pull request comments and look and see how the maintainers of a project handle criticism, submissions, those kind of things. And it really does come down to that. Um, 
as a reviewer, this is a teaching opportunity for you to share with someone else, not necessarily senior or junior, but just to share your knowledge with other folks in your team. Uh, definitely. Um, I, I like to look at it that way. And, and a lot of times these days, I'm kind of the senior person on projects, but I, I really like to have the open mind that perhaps the solution is not how I would have done it. But if I look at it and go, that's really cool and keep open to the idea that uh, developers and especially younger developers might have some new novel ideas that I would have never thought of or never found uh you know, looking for solutions, like maybe I'm just one of those guys who says, I know how to do this and I do it, rather than looking at new technologies or whatever that are out there. Sure, sure. So let's talk about the the code and the process that we go through. Um, I guess the first thing is we want to make sure that that process is systematic, that every time a piece of code comes through, it's handled exactly the same way as the piece of code that was submitted yesterday and the day before and the day, except to the point where you change the process, but back through time. And so that if down the line there needs to be an audit of some sort, you can say, we rest assured that all of our code has gone through the same process. Um, I'll stop there and say real quick, if you visit techmatters.fm slash 11, we have a sample checklist that you can download in PDF form. We would love to let you take a look at that, give you a rough idea of how we go through process. Um, so let's talk about the first thing, the issue itself. Um, and we, it's a different word. If you're in GitHub and you're using that as your, uh, resource your your repository it's going to be called an issue if you're using jira from atlassian then it's a, a jira ticket or something like that but whatever or a bug report whatever it is that is was originally submitted that caused action by a programmer and needed to be addressed we'll use that we're going to use the word issue for here um, so let's talk about the issue proper what's the first thing we look at What's the problem or, or, or what's the new feature that, okay. that someone has either requested or, or an issue that's been brought up as a problem? So you need to know what it is. So we have to clearly define our target. Yes. And then the second step is, does this code hit the target? Yes. All right. Um, that's the big deal. Hey, I submitted code. I solved this problem. Did you really? Right. That's what, that's one of the very base things that need to be checked when you're doing a code review. Um, then the other one is, does it only solve that problem? So let's talk about, uh, what, what are the problems if it doesn't only solve this problem? Um, like side effects? Yes. Things like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I certainly have run into that issue where, um, you, you get some, uh, especially if you, you have you know, someone working on it maybe was not there from from the beginning of the project, and an, an issue comes in that says, "Well, this particular thing is not working." And you're looking at the code review, and uh, they solved exactly only that. But does this uh, deviate from the original architecture and design? Which you know, some folks really lay that out from the start and really think about that. Not everybody, but sometimes you do, and you need to understand when you're working in one of those systems. And, and a good way to recognize it is if that particular person maybe talks about patterns or something, then you should a light should go off and go, okay, we're in that world, and I need to understand it. So uh, if you are in that world, does, does this solution fit within the intended big picture? Because there probably is one. And, and then 
is it causing any uh, undue side effects? So, for example, um, um, if you're in mobile world, you could have like eventing or, or uh, you know, multi-threading. Are you creating race conditions? I can I can absolutely think of an example where I was working on a mobile app and the pause and resume events um, that are thrown by the uh, operating system when 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 you put your app into the background and, and resume it. So in, inside your code, you, you get notified from the operating system that that has happened. So um, th- we had a resume handler in a place or two, and someone came in and added, oh, this is a super easy fix. I just need to add this here in this resume handler. And in in isolation, it absolutely would have been the exact solution. But in combination with the other resume handlers that were already in place, who took varying amount of time to finish what they were doing, it absolutely caused a race condition, which caused some total strange, weird side effect that took forever to figure out why is this particular button behaving this way when I kill and resume the app? It it seemed totally um, disconnected, but it was absolutely a reality. Unintended consequences. That's a lot of money gets lost there. A lot of money gets lost there. Um, the other thing I would look at is make sure you keep your change sets small. Only fix the problem that you're addressing and only submit the PR com- constrained in that scope. I know as a reviewer, I get bored after about 10 or 15 minutes of reading code. And it's not that I don't like to read code. I do. I, I waste time on the internet browsing code and looking at other people's work and looking at new ideas. But if it's for work, it's a different story. And I sit and I go, hey, well, wait, I'm, done. I'm done. You want to make sure that you've submitted a piece of code that is as small and minimal as it possibly can be so that the reviewer doesn't get bored, doesn't start running off side tangent thoughts. Um, I think that's a huge benefit for the poor reviewer if you as the coder can do that right and and things that i've seen too are not only you know do do people take things and perhaps rearrange sections of code functionally well i think this would look better here and this and that but they'll start messing with styles (laughs) so as the reviewer you're trying to not only figure out the core functionality that's being changed but now you have when you're doing it you know a diff you just have huge amounts of mess because the styles have been messed with so that that's a great segue intended or not um i i take full ownership over styles um within our organization and so we'll move into style guidelines as one of the things we look at so we're looking at the issue is it being addressed is it only being addressed are there any side effects but let's talk about the code itself and the style um one of the things that i find and we'll walk through these uh is that if somebody isn't following the style guidelines they're being sloppy in their code writing i tend to see later on may not be right away but later on i tend to see sloppy logic i tend to see poor coding I see a lack of interest. I see a lack of ownership. As much as we pooed that earlier, mm-hmm. there you do need to have some ownership and some pride in your work. And I find that style guidelines, if you can maintain that, um, is an early indicator of poor quality down the road. I don't know if you've seen that or not. I haven't, and I, I love that statement. I'm glad you brought it up. Okay. Um, style guidelines. Your guidelines need to be written somewhere. 
They're not something that you change from day to day. You set a policy and say, these are our guidelines. Um, They need to be very clear. We use semicolons in our JavaScript. No ifs, no ands, no buts. If you're missing a semicolon in a pull request, it's going to be paused until you fix it or reject it. Why? Because I said so. (laughs) Because there is those two scenarios where the JavaScript engine is going to crash and die. I don't care if 99% of the time it's not going to happen and it may never happen in your production app. The fact that it is possible, put the semicolons in. And that's the policy. doesn't matter who wrote the policy. That's the policy. They need to be accessible. How do you get a hold of them? Do you say we have a style guideline, but nobody can look at it? Well, that's not fair. That doesn't make any sense. And then the other one I do is, is it possible to automate the enforcement? Make it easy for your guys. In the repos, we talked about this when we talked about um, source control. Yes. Go ahead and put an editor, a dot editor config file in to make it easy for them to set up their editors, whichever one they use. Make it easy for them to run JS hint or run a linter or whatever. Real quick, you've set that for them. Explain the reasons to new dev who's being onboarded why you do things the way you do. Sometimes you're going to say, because we've always done it that way. But there's a reason down the back then why we decided to make that one. We were lazy and that's why we made the decision or two. We found it easier to read code. And then I guess that's the the last point is by applying a style guideline, you make the code easy for humans to read. Uh, Bob from Chicago mentions that a lot. Mm -hmm. Computers can read code easily. But when you're doing code review, you want to make sure that the code's easy to read by a human because that's who's doing the review. And as an aside, you mentioned something um, that I wanted to point out is you mentioned the word onboarding for, and I think we don't really talk about that too much, you know, something in the code review, but I think in general that even if it's very brief, a couple hours or something, it's important in many ways, not just the style guidelines, but here's how we do things. Here's the, here's the lay of the land. And it works well if you play well with us. <laughs> you think about it from a business point of view, and I, and I do. I tend to take the business approach a lot. If you're paying a programmer 50 bucks an hour, yeah, I know we all bill higher than that, but that's really about what take-home is for most devs. Um, you're talking three hours is 150 bucks. $150 spent invested now in a new developer during onboarding so that they understand the reason that you do what you do in your organization the return on that investment, the ROI on that is huge if you keep them for one, two, three years because the benefit and the quality of the code that you're putting out is superb because they understand and the, and the ownership, they take ownership in the process, not necessarily in the code, but in the process. Totally agree. All right. So that's style guidelines, logic. That's a big deal. Um, and you and I run into this a lot. We don't always apply logic the same way other new devs might or younger devs do. Uh, would you like to take first yeah, shot I'm, at that? You know, without giving any concrete examples, um, I think we can kind of uh, understand what we're talking about as far as logic. Um, you know, algorithms, of course, um, but even lo- uh, programmatic programmatic flow and logic flows and, and things like that, you're, it really comes down to um, efficiency. It, has this been done in an efficient way? Has it done in a maybe super efficient but highly obfuscated to read way, 
which, man, don't do that to me. I'm just saying. <laughs> I want to be able to read it. I want to be able to come back in six months and look at this one line of code and be able to read it. And I don't care how clever you were. Um, so I'm almost talking about like overly clever and overly efficient where it's kind of not maintainable. Um, you know, I, I would rather someone break it out and make it more maintainable. But, um, you know, does it do the logic? Is it is it overcomplicated? Is it undercomplicated because they didn't understand something? But, yeah, the, optimizing the logic and, and reducing it and optimizing it, it it's absolutely necessary. Sure. And one of the things folks misunderstand style guidelines, and I'll come back to that because it all, it applies here too. When you're talking style guidelines, you aren't talking just whether or not you have spaces between your parentheses and your brackets or whether or not you use semicolons or whether or not um, you have an extra space or whether your tabs or space oriented and whether they're two or they're four. Those are criteria in a style guideline, but you're also talking things like does your func- do your functions only do one thing? And so the outcome from that function is always the same, or there's not a possibility of us changing multiple things in a function. Um, how you handle your naming. Is it easy to read a function name and uh, variable names and those kind of things? So style guidelines also affects the logic flow too. One of the things I don't like and we do not allow is over reduction in particularly in JavaScript uh, over reduction of statements where you're pulling out your parentheses, you're putting everything on one line. Um, It is hard to read and it does cause confusion down the road when somebody has to come back. And if it takes them longer than 30 seconds to sit and go, what was so-and-so trying to accomplish with this? Then they've wasted what you think you've optimized in a compiler at runtime that's already going to do that work for you anyway. You've lost that benefit at $50 to $200 billable an hour to the clients because somebody had to waste their time on that. Yeah, you're passionate about it, and I am as well. And in fact, if you have ever or are going to ever see me speak at a conference or something, you're going to hear me say the word maintainability and extensibility. Absolutely. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, We talked about this wasn't necessarily an agile subject because it goes back into the old days, but automated testing are a big deal. Uh, We're talking peer review where a human reads another human's code and evaluates it. One of the things you do want to ask though, if you're in TDD, did the code come with automated tests that can be run against it? Um, So the first thing he asked is, do the, do the tests exist? (laughs) And if, you have a criteria in your organization that you require tests with new code, then you've got to have that. Um, you've worked with TDD before? Or? I have um, on a very minimal level. In fact, embarrassingly for the enterprises I've worked with, most of them have not done it. I'm familiar with it, but typically my clients don't do it. And most of it is because they have a legacy base for that time. Yes. And a lot of these systems don't have an easy way to set up automated testing for their systems. Um, and then you want to make sure that do the tests cover the code that we've added and do you have to modify any other tests because of the code that you've sent in? Exactly. Uh, I think let's, let's finish up talking a little bit about communication. I'll go ahead and let you start. Okay. Um, I think that code reviews are inherently confrontational. <laughs> 
and I think you said it before, <coughs> it, it can be kind of a personal experiment experience. Like, you know, this is my code and I'm putting myself out there in a way to be critiqued. And I'm the reviewer and it is my job to look at your code and judge it. Right. Yeah. So it, it is a confrontational um, experience, but you really need to look uh, beyond that and, and look more objectively um, that it is kind of a, a checks and balances uh, type of thing. It's, it's for the greater good. It's not personal. In, you know, 10 or 15 years, there's going to be no one's name attached to it, and it's still going to exist, and hopefully it's a lot better. It's not a personal experience, you know. Um, you, you have to have open communication, since you mentioned let's talk about communication. It has to be open communication, and if you said to me on my code, that's not going to work, it's my responsibility to say, well, could you please explain yourself? I don't know what you meant by this particular phrase. Oh well, what I meant by that is it's not you know maintainable or something like sure. that. Oh, is do you have a suggestion for how I could make it more? And then it becomes in the end, uh, no one's offended. Hopefully, if you're listening to what we're saying, you're not offended. Um, in the end, uh, we've both become better uh, communicators, better programmers. The code base has become better, and 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 just like in any business, communication is so important. And to remember that every word in text is emotionless. Yes, you can write a beautiful novel that you read emotion into, but text is emotionless, particularly in an issue or a jury ticket. Everything sounds confrontational. Yeah. So on that note, we're going to finish by saying be humble and be positive. Be positive <laughs> during your code reviews. Thank you for taking your time. Thanks for joining.